0: This episode of the Harper's podcast is sponsored by isthisacoup.com. If you're thinking this might be a good time to brush up on what a coup is and how to prevent one, this is the website for you. Visit isthisacoup.com for more information and actions you can take today. Welcome to the Harper's podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the web editor. When people talk about Don DeLillo, they sometimes complain that the author makes all of his characters sound the same, or that they all sound like him. It's hard to imagine DeLillo himself being bothered by the accusation. He's always been too concerned with addressing contemporary reality, both its absurd scatter and its often numbing flatness, to worry about being a realist. He's always been more interested in the ways certain situations make us talk than in the idiosyncrasies of individual speech. More than character or plot, his writing is driven by the qualities of language itself. The basic work is built around the sentence, he said in a 1993 Paris Review interview. I'm completely willing to let language press meaning upon me. Watching the way in which words match up, keeping the balance in a sentence, these are sensuous pleasures. The October issue of Harper's Magazine features the first chapter of Don DeLillo's 17th novel, The Silence, which is out this week. The following excerpt, consisting of dialogue between a man named Jim Cripps and his wife, Teresa Behrens, a poet, on an international flight, focuses on how the sensuous qualities of language take on contradictory and mysterious functions. Their half-conscious speech is both a defense against the noise and its perpetuation in a new form. Throughout the book, characters grapple with the distortion of time and discomfort created by the absence of technology, from airplanes to cell phones to electricity itself, through similar linguistic acts. One man mimics the broadcaster and fakes commercials during the non-existent Super Bowl. Another rants about Einstein's handwritten manuscript on the theory of relativity. As the digital silence continues, the characters find that they are limited to saying only what's in their heads, and they are burdened by the knowledge that they will soon forget what they've babbled. For this episode of the podcast, we bring you a recording of the full excerpt of the first chapter, with permission from Simon & Schuster. Part One
1: Chapter One Words, sentences, numbers, distance to destination. The man touched the button and his seat moved from its upright position. He found himself staring up at the nearest of the small screens located just below the overhead bin, words and numbers changing with the progress of the flight. Altitude, air temperature, speed, time of arrival. He wanted to sleep, but kept on looking. Ur a Paris, Ur a London. Look, he said, and the woman nodded faintly but kept on writing in a little blue notebook. He began to recite the words and numbers aloud because it made no sense, it had no effect, if he simply noted the changing details, only to lose each one instantly in the twin drones of mind and aircraft.
2: Okay. Altitude, 33,002 feet. Nice and precise. Temperature exterior, minus
1: 58C. He paused, waiting for her to say Celsius, but she looked at the notebook on the tray table in front of her and then thought a while before continuing to write.
2: Okay. Time in New York, 1255. Doesn't say a.m. or p.m., not that we have to be told.
1: Sleep was the point. He needed to sleep, but the words and numbers kept coming.
2: Arrival time, 1632. Speed, 471 mph. Time to destination, 334.
3: I'm thinking back to the main course. I'm also thinking about the champagne with cranberry juice.
2: But you didn't order it.
3: Seemed pretentious, but I'm looking forward to the scones later in the flight.
2: She was
1: talking and writing simultaneously.
3: I like to pronounce the word properly. An abbreviated letter O, as in Scott or trot. Or is it
1: scone, as in moan? He was watching her write. Was she writing what she was saying, what they were both saying? She said, Celsius, cap C? It was someone's name. Can't
3: recall his first
2: name. Okay. What about Vitesse? What does Vitesse mean?
3: I'm thinking about Celsius and his work on the centigrade measurement.
2: Then there's Fahrenheit. Him too. What does Vitesse mean? What? Vitesse.
1: Vitesse. Speed.
2: Vitesse.
1: 748 k per hour. His name was Jim Cripps. But for all the hours of this flight, his name was his seat number. This was the rooted procedure, his own, in accordance with the number stamped on his boarding pass. He was Swedish.
2: Who? Mr. Celsius. Did you sneak a look at your phone? You know how these things happen. Hmm. They come swimming out of deep memory. And when the man's first name comes your way, I will begin to feel the pressure. What pressure? To produce Mr. Fahrenheit's first name.
3: Go back to your sky-high screen.
2: This flight. All the long flights, all the hours. Deeper than boredom.
3: Activate your tablet.
2: Watch a movie. I feel like talking. No headphone.
1: We both feel like talking. No earbuds. Talk and write. She was Jim's wife. Dark-skinned. Tessa Barron's. Caribbean European Asian Origins, a poet whose work appeared often in literary journals. She also spent time online as an editor with an advisory group that answered questions from subscribers on subjects ranging from hearing loss to bodily equilibrium to dementia. Here, in the air, much of what the couple said to each other seemed to be a function of some automated process, remarks generated by the nature of airline travel itself. None of the ramblings of people in rooms, in restaurants, where major motion is stilled by gravity. Talk free-floating. All these hours over oceans or vast land masses, sentences trimmed, sort of self-encased, passengers, pilots, cabin attendants, every word forgotten the moment the plane sets down on the tarmac and begins to taxi endlessly toward an unoccupied jetway. He alone would remember some of it, he thought. Middle of the night, in bed. Images of sleeping people bundled into airline blankets, looking dead. The tall attendant asking if she could refill his wine glass. Flight ending, seatbelt sign going off. The sense of release. Passengers standing in the aisles, waiting. Attendants at the exit. All their thank yous and nodding heads. The million-mile smiles. Find a movie. Watch a
2: movie. I'm too sleepy. Distance to destination, 1,601 miles. Time in London, 18.04, speed, 465 mph. I'm reading whatever appears. Delay du vol, 3.45.
3: What time is the game?
2: 6.30, kickoff.
3: Do we get home in time?
2: Didn't I read it off the screen? Arrival
1: time, whatever, whatever.
3: We land in Newark, don't forget.
1: The game. In another life, she might be interested. The flight. She wanted to be where she was going without this intermediate episode. Does anyone like long flights? She clearly was not anyone.
2: Paris, 1908. Oh London, 1808. Speed, 463 mph. We just lost two miles per hour. Okay. I'll tell you what I'm
3: writing. Simple. Some of the things we saw.
2: In what language?
3: Elementary English. The cow jumped over the moon.
2: We have pamphlets, booklets, entire volumes.
3: I need to see it in my handwriting. Perhaps 20 years from now, if I'm still alive, and find some missing element, something I don't see right now. If we're all still alive
2: 20 years, 10 years. Filling time, there's also that.
3: Filling time. Being boring. Living life.
2: Okay. Temperature exterior. Minus 57F. I'm doing my best to pronounce elementary French. Distance to destination, 1,578 miles. We should have contacted the car service.
3: We'll jump in a taxi.
2: All these people, a flight like this? They have cars waiting. The huge scramble at the exits. They know exactly where to go.
3: They checked their baggage, most of them. Some of them. We did not. Our advantage.
2: Time in London, 1811. Arrival time, 1632. That was the last arrival time, reassuring, I guess. Time in Paris, 1911, altitude, 33,003 feet, Deux de vol, 316.
1: Saying the words and numbers, speaking, detailing, allowed these indicators to live a while, officially noted, or voluntarily noted. The audible scan, he thought, of where and when. She said, close your eyes.
2: Okay. Speed 476 miles per hour time to
1: destination. She was right. Let's not check our bags. We can squeeze them into the overhead. He watched the screen and thought about the game briefly, forgetting who the Titans were playing. Arrival time 1630. Temperature exterior, minus 47 C. Time in Paris, 2013. Altitude, 34,002 feet. He liked the two feet. Definitely worth noting. Outside air temperature, minus 53F. Distance de parcours. The Seahawks, of course. Cripps was a tall man's name, and he was tall, yes, but noncommittally so and had no trouble meeting his need to be nondescript. He was not a proud head bobbing above a crowd, but a hunched figure blessed by anonymity. Then he thought back to the boarding process. All passengers seated finally, meal soon to appear, warm wet towels for the hands, toothbrush, toothpaste, socks, water bottle, pillow to go with the blanket. Did he feel an element of shame in the presence of these features? They'd decided to fly business class despite the expense because the cramped space in tourist on a long flight was a challenge they wanted to avoid this one time. Eye mask, face moisturizer, the cart with wines and liquors that an attendant pushes along the aisle now and then. He watched the dangling screen and what he felt was the nudge of dumb indulgence. He thought of himself as strictly tourist. Planes, trains, restaurants. He never wanted to be well-dressed. It seemed the handiwork of a fraudulent second self. Man in the mirror, how impressed he is by the trimness of his image. Which was the rainy day?
2: You're noting the rainy day in your book of memories? The rainy day immortalized. The whole point of a holiday is to live it outstandingly. You've said this to me. To keep the high points in mind, the vivid moments and hours, the long walks... The great meals, the wine bars, the nightlife.
1: He wasn't listening to what he was saying because he knew it was stale air.
2: Jardin du Luxembourg et de la Cité Notre-Dame. Crippled but living. Centre Pompidou. I still have the ticket stub.
3: I need to know the rainy day. It's a question of looking at the notes years from now and seeing the precision, the detail.
2: You can't help yourself.
3: I don't want to help myself. All I want to do is get
2: home and look at a blank wall. Time to destination, one hour, 26. i tell you what I can't remember. The name of this airline. Two weeks ago, starting out, different airline. No bilingual screen. But
1: you're happy about the screen. You like your screen. It helps me hide from the noise. Everything predetermined. A long flight, what we think and say, our immersion in a single sustained overtone, the engine roar, how we accept the need to accommodate it, keep it tolerable, even if it isn't. A seat that adapts to the passenger's wish for a massage. Speaking of remember, I remember now.
2: What?
3: Came out of nowhere. Anders. Anders. The first
1: name of Mr. Celsius. Anders. Anders Celsius. She found this satisfying. Came out of nowhere. There is almost nothing left of nowhere. When a missing fact emerges without digital assistance, each person announces it to the other while looking off into a remote distance, the other world of what was known and lost. Children on this flight, well behaved.
3: They know they're not
1: in economy.
3: They sense their responsibility. She spoke and wrote simultaneously,
1: head down.
2: Okay. Altitude 10,364 feet, time in New York, 1502.
1: Except we're
3: going to Newark.
2: We don't have to see every minute of the game. I don't. I don't. Of course you do.
1: He decided to sleep for half an hour or until an attendant showed up with a snack before they landed. Tea and sweets. The plane began to bounce side to side. He knew that he was supposed to ignore this and that Tessa was supposed to shrug and say, smooth ride up to now. The seatbelt sign flashed red. He tightened his seatbelt and looked at the screen while she went into a deeper crouch, her body nearly folding into her notebook. The bouncing became severe. Altitude, air temperature, speed. He kept reading the screen but saying nothing. They were drowning in noise. A woman came staggering down the aisle, returning to the front row after a visit to the toilet, grabbing seat backs for balance. Voices on the intercom, one of the pilots in French and then one of the attendants in English, and he thought that he might resume reading aloud from the screen, but decided this would be a case of witless persistence in the midst of mental and physical distress. She was looking at him now, not writing, just looking and it occurred to him that he ought to move his seat to its upright position. She was already upright, and she slid her food tray into the slot and put her notebook and pen in the seat pocket. A massive knocking somewhere below them. The screen went blank. Pilot speaking French, no English follow-up. Jim gripped the arms of his seat and then checked Tessa's seatbelt and retightened his. He imagined that every passenger was looking straight ahead into the six o'clock news at home on Channel 4, waiting for word of their crashed airliner. Are we afraid? He let this question hover, thinking, Tea and sweets, tea and
0: sweets. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. Produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get twelve issues for twenty-one ninety-seven, visit harpers.org/save.